Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Father, for the, the Bible and for the word and for the wisdom that it offers. We thank you, Lord, that we've been entrusted with these things. We know that the world, Father, seeks for things that it shouldn't, that it, it views the falseness of the enemy as their truth, and they are deceived by so many things. And we were once just like them. For many of us, Father, it is still a struggle every day to accept the things that are good and perfect and godly and to reject the things that the enemy offers us in their place. Our flesh is ever present. Our flesh never stops in its attempt to pull us into sin, Father. And and yet because we have this good and better thing that you've given through the Scripture, this knowledge of you and this awareness of your expectations and of what righteousness is and looks like, because we have these things, We know better how to be. We have a different understanding of who we are and who you are. We have so much more than the world could have. So we thank you, Father, that you have blessed us with these things. And you've blessed us with a community who feel and and believe the same as we do so that we would not be alone in this world. And I thank you, Father, that you brought us here today. And now, Lord, I know that the word before us is eternal, that it existed before the ages and will never cease. But for one moment today, as we sit in this room, Father, it is new and different for us. It is revealed to us by your spirit. And so I ask that our hearts, Lord, would consider all that you present us this morning with a sense of urgency and a sense of of commitment to what we learn so that we're not simply hearers, that we have a doing attitude, Lord. What we'll do with it, Father, will depend on what you convict us to do and how it's manifested in our lives and how our hearts are directed by you. So each of us may do something different in some respect, but all of us, Father, moving in righteousness, I pray you'd make that possible. Convict us so that we would be more like you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we came near to ending chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, that well-known chapter of Scripture that describes what love looks like. And I think Paul's description is so well-known because he captures perfectly the way love is a verb, not a noun. It's not a feeling, it's an action, a set of actions, actually, when you look at the text that we studied. Love is how we treat others, it's not merely how we feel about others. In fact, when you feel love towards somebody, they can't actually know that you have that emotion unless it transfers into some action by which we demonstrate our love. So at the end of it all, love is action towards somebody. Those of us who have long struggled to put love into words, at least in the way Paul did here so eloquently in this 13th chapter. We're so envious of his ability to do that, but we have a we have a solution. It's really our actions that speak louder than our words. Many a husband, I think, is, has wished he could find the words Paul found. There's a great story from Reader's Digest, a true anecdote that was submitted to that publication by a wife about a time when, when she and her husband, who were their middle-aged couple, had attended a wedding and the wedding was for a young couple, of course, and the wife was noticing all the beautiful young ladies in the wedding, the bride and the bridesmaids, and they're all dressed up, and they all look so lovely, and she's beginning to reflect on her own fleeting youth and diminishing beauty and so on, and the husband starts to notice the melancholy in his wife, and so he decides he's going to cheer her up a little bit and say something sweet. So he leans over and he says, darling, you're more beautiful than half the women here. Clearly, men don't always have the right words to describe their love. But but Paul did. Paul had the right words in chapter 13. However, the thing we learned last week, if you remember, is 
Though the world sees this chapter as simply a discussion of what love looks like, we learned last week that in its context, in this part of Paul's letter, Paul is talking about love in a very specific way. He's talking about love in the context of the use of our spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. He was explaining to the church how we use our spiritual gifts and that that use must spring from a desire to show God's love to others. That's the purpose in the chapter. The use of our gifts must be self-sacrificial, motivated to show his love in meeting the needs of others, the spiritual needs of others in the body of Christ. That's what the chapter is really talking about. Our spiritual gifts cannot become an excuse to show off or to draw attention to ourselves or to provoke jealousy in others or to divide the body in some unhealthy way. So the point of the chapter is to express to a church, to the Corinthian church and, of course, to us as well, that as you use your spiritual gifts, your ultimate purpose and your motivating force must be love for others in the body. And then we ended at about chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. And I read those verses last week, but I lacked the time to really expound on them properly. So we're going to go back and pick up there again, verses 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And then we'll move forward into 14 today. Look at verses 8 through 10. Paul says, love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So Paul summarized the list of characteristics in this chapter that he said defined love. And then he reached this point and he says love never fails. Now, when Paul says love never fails, he's speaking in terms of its longevity in the human experience. Love is a single word that describes all the characteristics of a perfect, sinless existence. We could say God is love. You've heard this phrase, God is love. It's a true statement in the sense that it says God's existence is the embodiment of all of those characteristics of love that you just saw Paul write about in chapter 13, and then some, I'm sure, even more than we could name. God is kind, he is merciful, he is just, he is wise. Everything Paul wrote in his list are descriptions of the characteristics of perfection, sinlessness, which is love in that sense. The absence of any sin or malice or harm. So in that sense, Paul says, love never fails, speaking in eternal terms. Love will always be a part of our experience. In fact, once we reside in our glorified bodies, when we reach that point of our resurrection and we're living in the eternal body, in the glory of Christ, in the kingdom, in that future existence, we will finally and fully experience love in our person, in who we are. We will be sinless and therefore every action we have will be in keeping with love. The list in 1 Corinthians 13 will no longer be an ideal It will become our reality. It'll be an accurate description of every single person in this room who knows and follows Jesus Christ. Isn't that an amazing thing to consider? What today we know in a limited way, we will one day experience 24-7 because we are without sin. That's why Paul calls us even now to walk in the love that we have through the power of the Spirit and to set our minds on love in all that we do because he says that is the ultimate place we will be. That is our future. That is our destiny. So in that sense, Paul is saying, love never fails. 
Love never ceases. It only grows and it ultimately comes to its fulfillment in the kingdom. Now, on the other side, Paul says, by contrast, he says the spiritual gifts we have now, they will fail. Or another way to say it is they will go away one day. Unlike love, spiritual gifts are temporary. They are a temporary feature of our present existence. One day you will no longer have whatever spiritual gift you currently have today. Because why? One day they'll no longer be needed. And that gets us to the purpose of gifts. Paul presents, and I want you to notice what he does here again. Once again, he presents us a list of gifts. A very short one this time. Only three. But once again, you can tell it's an example list. It's not meant to be all inclusive. We get that. And Paul says the gift of prophecy will come to an end one day. As we defined prophecy in our earlier lesson, you remember we said that there's already been a partial cessation of prophecy. We don't have prophecy in the church today as it pertains to the revelation of Scripture. All Scripture is complete. The canon is now closed. So there's no one walking around the world today giving us new Scripture. And in that sense, that aspect of prophecy has ceased, certainly. But then, as we said, there are some ways in which you can define the word prophecy where you would still see the gift at work in a different sense. So Paul says there will be a day in the future in which all forms of prophecy cease. Even if you accept that some still exist today, they'll all be gone. And likewise, he says the gifts of tongues and the gift of knowledge, they someday will cease as well. I want you to notice once more, Paul includes the gift of tongues in this list. Like I said last week, every time Paul gives a list of gifts at any stage of this discussion through chapters 12 through 14, there's only one gift that shows up in every single list. Tongues. And we've said already, this is reflecting that Paul's focus in this discussion concerns tongues. That the reason this whole topic showed up in the letter is because he heard something from Chloe about what was happening in this church, which concerned him, and he's now launched onto this three-chapter session to correct them on their use of gifts. But the thing that's at the center of all of this is their inappropriate use of the gift of tongues which we'll see more in a minute. But back to the point, Paul says one day prophecy will cease. One day gifts of tongues will cease. One day gifts of knowledge will cease. Now, some interpreters have looked at this particular passage and suggested that what Paul was speaking about was the near term cessation of certain gifts that they say Paul was speaking here about the end of prophecy and the end of tongues at the end of the apostolic age, not at the end of our current age. Now, it may be true that some gifts have ceased, at least in part, like I mentioned prophecy, for example. But the text does not support a general cessationist view. There are still, as I said, some forms of prophecy at work. But even if you dispute that, there are certainly gifts of knowledge or discernment still present in the church. And there's no word in Scripture that says those have ceased. And even the gift of tongues has a certain purpose during this age, which we'll learn more about in chapter 14. So contextually, if you want to interpret Paul's examples here of cessation as speaking of this current age, it won't work because some of these gifts still exist. On the other hand, when you see it as an eternal conversation, you have the right perspective to understand his words. He's saying that in the kingdom age, once you and I are in our resurrected, glorified bodies, these gifts will no longer exist. Why do the gifts end when we reach the kingdom? The answer is because they fulfill their purpose as we reach the kingdom. And their purpose, as Paul has described it, is to reflect the love of God into the church. So once we have reached our glorified state, 
We no longer have need for spiritual gifts because at that point we will know the love of God perfectly. We will be perfect. Therefore, we will reflect love perfectly and we will know God perfectly. Notice in verse 10, Paul says that when the perfect comes and he's speaking there about our perfect, sinless, glorified life in Christ. When that perfect comes, he says we will put away the partial. And he's speaking here to partial forms of love. Today in the body of Christ, we show love within this body through the effective use of our spiritual gifts when I use them for their purpose, that is of loving someone else in the body, loving a brother or sister in the body through the use of my gift, I am manifesting a portion of God's love into their life. But it's only a portion of God's love. Think of it as a coming attraction, a preview of what it will be like to live in perfect harmony with God, in sinless living with God. But obviously, once I've moved into that sinless perfection of the kingdom, I no longer need my brothers or sisters in the Lord to minister to me through some gifting whose purpose in the beginning was just to manifest some slice of God's love. I don't need that partial when I've come into the fullness of what I have in perfection. Look what Paul says next in verse 9. He says, we don't need these crutches any longer once we've been moved into our perfect state. He says in verse 9, for we know in part... And we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. But now faith. Hope, love, abide in these three. But the greatest of these is love. Today, when someone serves in their spiritual gift, whether it's of knowledge, let's say, or prophecy, the examples Paul used, when that person ministers to us with that gift, you're receiving a small taste of what life in the kingdom will be like. Or we could use the example of the gift of prayer. I love the example of the gift of prayer. When prayer takes place through someone who's gifted in that particular gift, we see almost perfect communication with God, where I might pray in fits and spurts and with varying degrees of success, and it's a chore and it doesn't always seem to work. Someone else with a gift of prayer seems to find it no burden at all. They do it almost instinctively. And to know that it's truly a gift, I watch the result of their prayer appearing to be much more impressive than mine. They seem to get whatever they pray for. It's like they're always in the will of God with their prayer life. And so perhaps they are. That's the gifting of it. They seem to be able to communicate with God perfectly, at least to a limited degree. Do you know that's exactly what we will all experience in the kingdom? Isaiah says in Isaiah 65, 24, speaking about the days of the kingdom and what it will be like, he says, it will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they're still speaking, I will hear. You and I have each been given some small portion of what it will be like to have no barriers of sin in our relationship to each other or with God. In perfect love, in other words. We have a small taste of it here. As it's applied in the body properly, we're getting that chance to sense a little bit of what that kingdom future is like. So Paul says our gifts are given to us to compensate 
for our spiritual immaturity here and now and for our sin here and now because we have an inability to love perfectly now and yet by His grace we've been given a way to do it through some particular gift so that corporately He's seen in us for a time. God has assigned them for that purpose because we do not have love perfectly expressed in our nature today. Instead, we have a lot of sin just by the nature of our physical bodies still being fallen, still dragging us into sin. Sin blinds us. It deceives us. It creates fear at times in us. It creates doubt. It leads us into all kinds of other false and destructive behaviors. Take all of that out of the way and love reigns. But we can't take it out of the way yet. We're limited in our ability to love. And so by his grace, he's given us these gifts to compensate. Knowing this, Paul says, we should look forward to the time when we will be perfect in love and no longer dependent on others' spiritual gifts in the body. That should be our longing. And once again, he uses an illustration through an analogy. He uses the analogy of children. He says children, by their nature, exhibit certain behaviors. They speak like kids. They say things that are foolish or silly or perhaps inappropriate at times. But one day, God willing, they'll grow out of that. Someday in the future, they'll be speaking in mature terms like we'd expect an adult to speak. Children think in childish ways. They're often self-centered. They're often thinking only about themselves. They don't plan for the future. They think only about the moment. But there is a day to come when they will start to think very deeply and very soberly about their future. And they'll have an appreciation of the past. And that will inform their decisions as they go through life. That's what adulthood looks like. And then lastly, he says, children reason in very simple and incomplete ways. And they make decisions without all the facts. Adults, on the other hand, possess a far greater understanding of the world. And that understanding informs their views and their actions. Now, how does he apply the analogy? Well, Paul says there comes a time when we will set aside the partial that we lean on now because of our sin. And in its place, we will embrace the fullness of love as we exist in that perfect form in the kingdom. Just as a child, once they grow up, they gladly put away the childish stuff. Once we reach the kingdom, we will all gladly give up our spiritual gifts because what will come in its place is far greater. And that greater thing is a full independence from their need. We need to understand them now in light of that future. We have to understand that we possess them now only as a compensation for our inability to express love perfectly. And we will gladly relinquish them when love comes. In the meantime, gifts are not a means to themselves. They are a means to the end of love. Their purpose is to bring love where it wouldn't otherwise exist. In verse 12, Paul says, Today, we have only a faint, cloudy reflection of what the kingdom will be like in the way our gifts work in the body. That's what he's referring to. Actually, my Bible says mirror, but in literal terms in the Greek, the word there is not mirror. It means crystal ball. So he says it's as if we're trying to understand what the kingdom would be like, and we're looking into this cloudy crystal ball, and we just can't make it out very clearly. But one day, he says, we won't even be looking in that ball. We'll be looking face to face to God. We'll be in his presence. We'll be in a position where we'll have all of that cloudiness taken away. What does that mean for us? He's saying today when we come together and we use our spiritual gifts and we see that effect, you're looking at the kingdom as if through a cloudy crystal ball. You're seeing a faint reflection of what that will really be like in the kingdom. So that's how spiritual gifts are to be understood in the context of love. Now, let's consider the last statement Paul makes. He says that he wants us to abide 
in faith, hope, and love, but love is the most important. The word abide, by the way, just means to rely patiently, to rely patiently on something. He says, rely patiently on these three things while you wait for that perfect day to come. But he says, one of them is greater than the other two. How can love be greater than faith? I mean, isn't faith the foundation of how we come into the body of Christ, right? Well, once again, the issue comes down to temporary versus permanent. Temporary versus permanent. Faith and hope are temporary. You will not have faith in the kingdom. You will not have need of it. You will not have hope in the kingdom. You will have what you hoped for. So there will be no more hope. Paul himself says in Romans 8:24, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already has? The point is you've been given faith now in lieu of the inheritance you will have. You've been given hope now in lieu of the reality of your resurrection. Once you have been resurrected, once you have received your inheritance, once you are in the kingdom, faith is no longer required. You can see it. But love, love never goes away. Love now is manifested in the work of Christ on the cross. It's manifested in the work of the Spirit in you. It's manifested from you to another through your spiritual gifts. And in the kingdom, love will be ever-present for it will define us. It is God's definition. It will become ours as well in the sense that our perfection will take away any non-loving characteristics. Let me summarize what he said in this chapter very quickly. He says, spiritual gifts are given to manifest love from God to the church. God assigns us these gifts to compensate for our sinful weaknesses. We may experience through them a small measure of the love that we're going to know in the kingdom. Therefore, we have to use our gifts in light of that purpose. We have to use them to fulfill their purpose. Spiritual gifts and faith and hope, all of these things have a purpose for a time, but it's only love that reigns forever. So our goal is not gifts. Our goal is love. Our focus is not the gifts. Our focus is in how they magnify love. That's essential. Because it means there are times when it's best to put my gift away rather than to use it. There's times when I want to magnify someone else's gift, not my own, if love is my concern. So now that's how we end this chapter. Now as we go into the next chapter, we really dial up the correction. And I remember I said chapter 13 was a chapter on correction. It was, it's a very muted one. It's gentle chastising of the church. It's Paul pointing out to them where their heart should be. Now, as he moves into chapter 14... He is going to come to the point of a full frontal assault on what they're doing in terms of their use of gifts. For the Corinthians, spiritual gifts had become a badge of honor for the individual who had a gift. And it was not a means of showing love to others. It was a means of showing pride in self. Total misuse of the gift. So he's going to leave nothing to chance in this last chapter. He's going to spell out everything, both what they shouldn't be doing and what they should be doing. And there's a little irony to be found in this chapter because much of what Paul writes in chapter 14 has been twisted over the decades and the last century by certain people in the church to justify carrying on the very practices that Paul condemns in this chapter. It's quite ironic. Let's look at the chapter starting in verses 1 through 4. Paul now says to the church, pursue love, desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, 
but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But one who prophesies edifies the church. Paul begins the chapter by repeating his command. He says the church is to pursue love. And then he says, also, I want you to desire earnestly spiritual gifts. Now, remember, we said he's stating in a second person plural to the church body, desire or pursue the gifts. Y'all do this. Remember, second person plural. So what Paul is saying is that the church as a whole should wish to see certain greater gifts expressed more often than the lesser gifts. It's not about a personal pursuit. It's about a corporate pursuit. And you notice as he says it here in verse one, he says, especially that you would desire prophecy. Now, remember the list we looked at in chapter 12. What was the highest order gift in that list? It was the apostolic gift, right? Prophecy was number two. Why does he skip the highest gift when he says to the church, go pursue the greatest gift? He says, go pursue prophecy. Why didn't he say the apostolic gift? Well, it would make sense that he would skip that gift. And go to number two, because in Paul's absence, and he's absent, he's writing to this church from another city. In his absence, there is no apostolic gift in the church. There was no apostle in Corinth. If there's no apostle, you can't pursue that gift. Paul knows that, so he jumps to number two, which is the only one that would make sense to this church under these circumstances. He tells them, pursue the prophetic gift. Because why? It's the greatest gift in the church. So in pursuing love, remember, that's the goal in pursuing love. He says to the church, you should desire to see the highest priority gift expressed in your body, in your church body before any other gift is expressed. But then notice he contrasts that prophecy with seeking the gift of tongues, which we know is the lowest gift on that list. Remember, the last one in line were the gifts of tongues. So why does he jump from the highest to the lowest. Why does he say, pursue this rather than this? Well, he's making a contrast, right? He's trying to take their attention off the back of the list and he's moving their attention to the front of the list. He's saying, stop playing around at the bottom. Come to the top where all the value is. Paul wants the church to move away from what is less valuable to what is more valuable. And I want you to consider this. Remember, the purpose of the gift is love of God represented in the body. Then we can safely assume that these gifts are rank ordered from highest to lowest, on the basis of their propensity to create love in the body. That the higher order gifts are higher because they promote more love than the lower gifts do. For example, the revelation of God in prophecy is far more powerful in its ability to promote love within the body than is the gift of speaking in a foreign tongue. And now I've mentioned the gift of tongues on numerous occasions as Paul has brought it up. But if you remember back in chapter 12, I deferred discussing it or even defining it very well because I said we would get back to it. Well, here we are. So let's take a moment to understand and define what is speaking in tongues, biblically speaking, because Paul now is about to make that the focus of the rest of this chapter. First, the word tongue in scripture in Greek is glossa, G-L-O-S-S-A, glossa. It has two meanings in Greek. First, it can mean your tongue the part of the body that's in your mouth. But it is also a synonym for human language. So it can either mean tongue, literally, or tongue in the sense of a language. Obviously, by the context here, we know Paul's not talking about the physical tongue. He's talking about speaking in a foreign or human language. So when we say the gift of tongues, let's not think about something super mysterious here, because it's not. 
It's talking in a human language. That's it. Now, it's important to emphasize tongues is a real language. A real human language. Speaking tongues means speaking with a language that has syntax, vocabulary, structure. It's not merely repetitive babbling. It's not a bunch of single-syllable sounds repeated over and over and over again. That's not language. That's just what children do, what infants do. It's not language. When you hear someone speaking in a foreign language, one that you don't understand, you can still distinguish it from babbling, right? If you listen to a two-year-old babble, you're not thinking that they've made up their own language. You know it's not real. They may have some thought in their head when they say it, but they have no way to communicate it because it's not a structured language. Similarly, when you hear someone speaking in Chinese, you may not follow what they're saying, but it's clearly got structure and complexity to it. The ear can tell the difference. When we use the word tongue, we're talking about a real human language. So now the question becomes, how is that a supernatural gift? I mean, we all talk in a language. So how do we say a gift then is supernatural if it's just what we all do every day? Well, it's supernatural because the speaker doesn't even understand the words coming out of their own mouth. They are speaking in a human language they don't know. For example, I speak English most of the time, and I know a little Spanish, but I absolutely know no Japanese whatsoever. So if I were to suddenly start speaking to you in Japanese, a true human language, you would probably not know it, I'm assuming, because you don't know Japanese, but neither would I. The words coming out of my mouth would be Japanese, but I wouldn't have a clue what I just said because I don't know it. My ear doesn't understand it, but my mouth suddenly spoke it. That's what speaking in tongues is. The miracle is that someone speaks a language they don't know. But the miracle doesn't mean it's a mystery to everyone. In fact, if I had the gift of tongues and God gave me through the spirit the ability to start speaking in Japanese and you happened to grow up in Japan and were a native Japanese-speaking person, you would understand me perfectly. And not because you have the gift of interpretation. It's your language. And if you said, how did you know Japanese? I'd say, I don't. That's the spirit. That's not me. That's the gift of speaking in tongues. You want proof of that? Look at Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, you have the Pentecostal moment that we all know so well, when the first indwelling of the Holy Spirit came into the church. And it's accompanied by this very unique moment of a mass group of people speaking in tongues. But I want you to notice what the crowd says about that moment. Verse 1 of chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then listen, they began to speak with other Tongues, meaning not their own language, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, here's the fascinating part. Now, there's a group of people watching this happen. Now, this group watching this happen is not being affected by it. This is a group of unbelieving Jews who are gathered in Jerusalem at this time of year, at the Pentecost of, of the year. They happen to see this happen. Now, they're not getting the Spirit. They're watching other people get this. But listen to what they say about what happens. Verse 5. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together. So they hear this disturbance and all these Jews rush to hear what's going on. And it says they were bewildered because each of them, each of these Jews was hearing them, the people, the people being indwelt, speak in his own language. 
And they were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we are able to hear them in our own language to which we were born? You see, the gift of speaking in tongues is not speaking in some mysterious, hysterical way, saying things that no human can understand, babbling in incoherent sounds. It's just speaking a natural foreign language that you just don't know. Look what the men said. They said, aren't these guys Galileans? Now, Galileans spoke Aramaic generally. So these are men from other places, Jews who were naturally born in other places, expatriate Jews, who've come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration and they've held on until Pentecost. And God assembles them so that when the speaking in tongues moment occurred in the early church, these men could be a witness testifying to what happened. And what's their testimony? How come these Galileans who speak Aramaic are suddenly speaking in a language that I know? How did they come to know that? Bingo. There's your miracle. There's your gift. You see, the way it's done in so many places today is a false, counterfeit, mechanical, invented substitute for the real thing. Why? Because they don't have the real thing. And when you don't have the real thing, and yet you feel like you should, you mimic. But you can't mimic a gift. I don't care how much you want to know how to teach in a spirit-led way. If you don't have the gift of teaching, you can only do what your flesh can do. If you don't have the gift of prayer, you can only do what your flesh can do. If you don't have the gift of service, you can only do what your flesh can do. You can mimic to a point. But then what's going to be different between you and the one who has the gift is all the difference. It's going to show the reality of God at work versus what men can do in their own power. What can you do with language? If you don't know Japanese, you can't fake it any more than blah, 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 blah. That's not Japanese. I don't care what he thinks. That's just babbling. It's just that simple. It's just that unfortunate. And there's proof in Scripture that what tongues is about is something beyond what it's become in the world we see so often today. Now, am I saying tongues can never happen? We're not there yet. Let's look at later in the chapter on that issue. But to simply define it for now, we need to understand that the gift of tongues has a very specific form, which cannot be mimicked by the flesh, for then it would not be spirit given and it would not be glorifying to God. So now the question remains, how does anyone benefit spiritually from this kind of a gift existing in the body of Christ? How does it benefit me spiritually if someone else can suddenly speak in a foreign language that they don't understand? And which I don't even understand. In fact, Paul addresses that. Look in verse 2. Paul says, the one who is gifted to speak in tongues is speaking to God alone, not to men. Well, that makes perfect sense. If you start speaking in a language you don't understand and I don't understand, neither of us are going to get much benefit out of it, are we? The benefit comes in the fact that God is seen to work in such a miraculous way that it encourages the heart of the one in whom he's acting, in the one who's speaking, in a private moment. You ever had those moments where you see God's hand in your life? You found that, that money right when you needed it, or there was that event that saved you from peril, and you think later, gosh, that was God. He just stepped in and solved that problem for me. He just gave me that money. He just took that harm out of my way. And it's, it's that moment when your faith is built up privately. It's like God just showed up, touched you and walked away and you say, yeah, I know he's there. I know he's with me. It just reminded me of what I've always been told and what I've always believed. But now it feels even more real and it strengthens you. It edifies you for the moment. But it's private. It's focused. Speaking in tongues, it has that effect. When you see it happen, you realize, I don't know what just happened, but that's God. It strengthens you for a moment. But it's not communicative. It doesn't transfer knowledge. It doesn't help me know something. It doesn't help someone else know something. That's why it lives at the other end of this scale. 
It's not that it has no value. It's just that it has very limited value. And it's focused for a reason. Now, it has a much bigger purpose in another way, which we'll get to later in this chapter. But on an individual level, that's its purpose. No one else benefits. It says you speak to God alone, which is a way of saying you commune with God on this level. Notice Paul says the speaker is communicating in mysteries. We all know what we're saying, and God alone is in control of that. So it's of a limited gift. It's ranked at the last. It serves to edify, Paul says, only one person. It does not edify the whole. And look what he says in verse 3. Paul says that prophecy can impact many people in the body for the purpose of edification and exhortation and consolation. It's all examples of how speaking with the power of God's word can accomplish these things on a mass scale because it is communicative. It does transfer information in a helpful way. That's where we need to be spending our time. If we had someone in here, for example, who could speak in the gift of tongues, they wouldn't be prevented from using their gift. They wouldn't be silenced out of opportunities to participate. But where would it rank in our priorities? How much of an hour and a half should we spend listening to someone say something we can't understand versus listening to the word of God? That's the fundamental question that Paul's putting in front of the church. He's saying, if love is the priority, spend your time on the things that promote it to the greatest possible degree. Not to the exclusion of all else, but to the emphasis over all else. So he concludes his introduction to this chapter, if you want to call it that, by saying the one who uses the gift of prophecy is edifying the body, while the one who uses the gift of tongues is only edifying themselves. So in terms of love, in terms of priority, do we want a bunch of people serving themselves or serving each other? That's the question. Which is why Paul says the church should seek after prophecy when and where it's available or by process of logic, any gift of higher order over any other gift. Today, that would be principally teaching at the top of the list and then down the list from there. And with that, now Paul's ready to expose the problems of the church. So we'll end there into chapter 14 next week. We're going to dive now headlong into the primary concern Paul has in this church. And if you haven't seen it already, it's pretty easy to pick up on at this point, right? The principal problem in this church was an unhealthy fascination with speaking in tongues to the exclusion of almost all other gifts being practiced so that they ironically spent all their time emphasizing a gift whose only purpose was individual edification. And they gave no little or little or no time to all the other things God had placed in the body for the edification of the whole. Let's go to prayer as we finish. Heavenly Father. I do ask, Father, that what we learn as we go through this study and we move to the end of it in a coming week will help us use our gifts better. That's our point, Father. That's our purpose, to edify one another in love. I thank you, Father, that you gave us these opportunities to know the kingdom in a small measure now. But I pray they would bolster our faith and our hope and our love for what we know is coming and guide us into all righteousness now so that we use what we have in the best possible way. Remembering everyone has a purpose, everyone has a place, we all work together. But there are certainly better ways than others to encourage and to spread the love of Christ in our, in our midst and in this fellowship. Show us how to do that, Lord. Send us out from here with that hope and that desire. Give us opportunities. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.